Adventures, Small Beans Woo. listeners. It is 2023. Oh my gosh. Wow. Post without downloading any new pics, your energy going into 2023. Because it's time to start the new year off right. And what That's better right. way to do that than talking about movies with my pal, Abe Epperson. You heard him uh, clumsily interrupting under my introduction. Introduce yourself, Abe. Oh shucks, I'm Abe. You're, Thanks, Michael. It's 2023, Abe. It's new Abe. He's dangerous. I'm the bad boy. And I'm 2023, Michael. And uh, here to just, man, just set the tone for the rest of your 2023 is returning champion, Brooks Brown. Welcome, Brooks. Woo! Oh, hello, and thank you for having me. Back oh to my gosh. more Kaufman. Yeah, yeah. Yes. If you've heard uh, Brooks on before, there are some exceptions. I think we talked Ichi the Killer, Ichi did the we killer. not? Yeah. But uh, we mostly bring Brooks in to discuss Charlie Kaufman films. Uh, and we figured, you know, what better way to set the mood than with arguably the moodiest of the Charlie Kaufman films. I'm thinking of ending things. So suicide reference <laughs> right in the title. Great. Good. 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 Well, yeah. And it should be said, uh, just as the disclaimer, this is genuinely a depressing film, and we're <laughs> going to be touching on suicide a lot. So, disclaimer, yes, tr yeah, tr content massive warning, massive trigger warning. That there's, is there's the no bit. way to have a talk about this film without really going into some dark places. We do find it an interesting film, or at least I do. That's what we're going to dive into. Uh, it's not even my favorite Kaufman, but it rises to the level of being interesting to discuss. Jesse Plemons always incredible, of course, and. Uh, and yeah, the, that's the bit. If you're unaware, we're going to unpack it further, but the big thing you should be aware of is it's basically the bleakest film I've ever seen, possibly. Like, even in, I don't know, even in uh, Requiem for a Dream, like, he's still got one arm. You know, ass to ass is still <laughs> some kind of human comfort, human touch, like positive attention. But uh, this this is pretty bleak. That's what I love about you, Swain. You find the positive in everything, you know? Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so let's dive right in. We usually start off a frame rate by asking the guest uh, why this film. So I've got to, you know, put a little twist on that for Brooks. But like, what do you think is unique about this film? What gets you excited to talk about this one? in the overall Kaufman like oeuvre because obviously we're here to complete the Kaufman thing but like what's unique about this film what's your first blush takeaway from this uh for me the thing I love most about this is that it deals with I think depressing horrible sadness and and in a, a bleak uh hopeless way and that's not a thing you actually see very often in film or in books and the book of the film is is not drastically different in that sense uh, the book that sort of inspired it. Yeah. I, I like uh, stories that go into more, I don't know, the side corners of our lives that we don't talk about, the feelings we have of loneliness, the feelings we have of, you know, what it means to not have anybody and uh, how some people are relegated to that position and, and why and how. And it's, I think, a very well done version of sort of experiencing that that moment in life as someone who's who's experienced some pretty severe depression uh it it struck me as deeply authentic despite being as oddly abstract as it is yeah uh longtime listeners will know i'm i resonate with that very strongly so yeah also very always compelled like i talk 
Patriot up a lot specifically because of the authentic feeling of the way it depicts depression, despair, self-loathing. And I am likewise always fascinated by stories that dive into that. It, it reminded me not that it's interesting because these films are not the same in any regard, other than the fact that they all tackle this subject. That's always compelling to me that we almost never get, which is truly focusing on the truly marginalized or discarded person alike in some sense, <laughs> precious also does this and it it's like big and loud and um, four quadrant about it. But I still walked away from precious meditating on like, it there's this there's this niche in life where people who really have no support network and have no one there but for the grace of god go i like and yet they exist like imagine their existence the person who loses their family early in life and then lives alone for 50 years in an apartment never talking to anyone and they die someday like that's just mind blowing and another movie that always sticks out to me about on that theme is inside lewin davis which is more about like for every talented person who makes it, there's a million equally talented people who just won't, and they just have to deal with that, and that's their life. Like, fuck them. <laughs> that's life, well, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and it, and it's, yeah. de- it's incredibly hard for filmmakers to get, at, at least in my experience, and this is maybe just for me, to actually get me in, as a viewer in the place of being able to empathize with someone who is generally in these films, someone who is themselves not an empathetic character. Inactive. Uh, yeah. Like, if I were to run into them in real life, I would probably not like them, but how do you get someone to sort of have that empathy and, and dive into that and sort of experience the world through their eyes. And it's uh, precious is a phenomenal experience of like what it means to be someone I definitely wouldn't know or couldn't dive into the world of. And it did that well. And I think I'm thinking of ending things. Does it, uh, I, in my opinion, uh, uh equally well, if not I don't know, something I, I maybe resonate stronger with cause I, it, it's a lot of cult- cultural touchstones for me and myself, but it's, I found it to be right. a powerful film. It does it in the art film Kaufman way that you would expect, you know, yeah. it's, it's through his lens. Uh, we haven't heard from Abe. So Abe, please take us down a few notches and say why you don't think it's that good. Uh, what's, what's really going on here? What's this movie about? It's almost exp- an experimental film in that like most Charlie Kaufman reality uh, is kind of being bent in a way. And, you know, what separates this from, like, Synecdoche, New York, what I read of it, and feel free to disagree with me, is, like, basically, if the version of someone else in my mind was self-aware of my own interpretation of them, how would they react? And it also has several other things going on, like, what if they, what if I was manipulative toward that avatar and would just like activate them like a prison. Like you're stuck in my mind prison constructed of my thoughts and uh, you, and she gets angry at that. So she becomes her own agent in a way. True. Or like, this is so dumb to say, but it's, it's an elegant manifestation of the idea that it's so stupid, but like, so let's say you're a creepy old man, right? You can look at a beautiful young woman and you can capture her image and keep it in your mind. They can't stop you. Like, there's no law, man. So, yeah. like, take that to the nth degree. It's ultimate right. in one in one dimension of the film. It's about a few storylines. Right. But right. Um, and we're going to blow up the twist right away because it makes well, it more interesting that's what to I talk mean when about. I say when I say like someone who is unsympathetic, like as yeah. a character, this is a dude who. He's just like a loser. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the things he 
thinks and how he sort of remembers things and how he talks about himself. Like this, I mean, it, without, I mean, at some point we're going to talk about the story, but he really does. Uh, I made a joke early on that the movie could have been called Requiem for an Incel. Uh, yeah, totally. And it, and somehow you still end up feeling empathy for the dude. Because he's also totally. incredibly well read and crammed with information. It, well, and there's a, I almost, I was reminded of like the burning of the Library of Alexandria, just in the sense that it's interesting that because the whole film is in some sense his inner monologue, because it's revealed that it's some kind of manifestation of journals he was writing or his thoughts. Um, but regardless, uh, he makes a he's pretentious too, right? Like as a janitor, he's also been reading a bunch and learning philosophy and physics and shit. And in some sense, I just I was able to lament like what an incredible thing to cram uh, mm -hmm. a human brain full of information and actually interesting ideas, never share them with anyone and die and the brain rots away. Like what a loss of information. <laughs> right. The smart kind of aspect of what Ch Kaufman is doing here is that how does he build that empathy from a story perspective? It's really only a few moves because most of the, because we don't get the reveal until the end that all of this is a fictional mind space. Right. And so even though there are bricks of reality, like the dinner scene and stuff like that, where we kind of have like a redo button uh, and, tried you know uh yeah. conversations several different and ways there's clues like you the very opening as, offer is yeah, yeah, yeah. him being able to read her thoughts and you but go oh that's a clue but yeah what you get is you get uh you get the feeling that uh jesse plemons is like a flawed man like he's a little he plays it a little too close he doesn't tell her everything um he's a, he, he's kind of demanding about what he wants there's a few things that you're like, ah, he's not the greatest, but you do get from Jesse Buckley's character that she is, uh, anytime he tries to, you know, say something that he likes or like, I enjoy that, or I enjoy that, or he builds her up and he says, your poems are great. Um, she shoots him down. So that empathy is built within this kind of toxic relationship that they share, which we then learn at the end is... Pot is completely imagined by him. So I think what you said about that incel comment definitely comes uh, to, to the front space because yeah. like with most incels, the common understanding is it's mostly a kind of mental exercise of this is what they do to me. This is the kinds of things. It's that kind of logic, that kind of projection. And the, so, this, this was his idealized relationship. Like, right, which is pathetic. And it well, yeah. it also makes sense, which I like. I mean, it works for me, the elegance of it, that uh, as his journals draw to a close and he's thinking, I'm thinking of ending things, I'm going to die. Uh, why not end the story? And if you're contemplating suicide and you hate yourself, you'd probably, you're like, she'd probably even dump me anyway, right? So, of course, the character of her that he's writing is also thinking of ending things. It works quite nicely. <laughs> Yeah, it wraps yeah. up just like any. But you're coffin. right that we should focus on because we're sort of focusing on, which I get why the interesting ending and how it relates to everything. But the experience of it, the meat of it is the two Jessies driving to the parents' house and having dinner with the parents and having this sort of surreal Eraserhead-esque dinner with the folks uh, where they age over time. And Jesse Plemons starts to become more and more unhinged, abstract, 
And then from there, they go and get some tasty freeze and a blizzard. And then it sort of starts to unravel from there. Um, so that's just like in an overview, which is also, as Brooke said, all, all, how it all happened in the book. I can definitely see why this uh, appealed to Kaufman, like this book in particular, because it's doing the Kaufman thing where everything is multiple things. Uh, but yeah, how did you guys or how did you feel about the I actually thought there was a fair bit of the first time I watched it, especially not knowing the ending. Uh, the horror really worked on me, which I, I we talked a bit about how Synecdoche is also a horror movie in many ways, but it's more like a terror movie or a dread of death or mm -hmm. meaninglessness movie. Um, I mean, like the dog shaking eternally that could be in an Ari Aster movie. Like someone should steal that for yeah. a quote unquote real horror movie. And the uncanny action of the parents, uh, Tony Collette and what's his they name? Were Who Thulis? Thulis? God, they were great. They're great. Yeah. The parents are awesome and uncanny and all the dog stuff. Like I love, she goes like, is there a dog? Because there's like a sign of a dog, but there's no dog. And he's like, Oh, there's a dog. And then there is one, even though there clearly wasn't before. <laughs> and then it just shakes eternally. Um, yeah. Like how did you, before you knew the twist, how were you, how were you experiencing this movie? If you can put yourself in that mind space. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things that uh, I found it to be a horror thriller, just like you're talking about the, the oddness of the drive. And just to, just to talk about, cause it, the, the entire film has this really odd quality to the whole thing of, um, you know, cause he does the trick of what well, he did in the light, the director did in the lighthouse with the three by four uh, film where we're not actually seeing the full wideness. So there's a very odd cramped, uh, the claustrophobic feeling of that. It's very tight shots back and forth, but, very quickly, it becomes clear that she is, uh, we'll just say, not right. Like there's something wrong and that he is ultimately the one in control. Uh, she changes her profession. Like I, the things you notice early on are like weird things where you're, because I watched it knowing it's confident. Maybe if I didn't know it was confident and I wasn't watching for like weird shit. But mm -hmm. when she starts changing what she's studying, that was the first like note that was like really strange. He starts reading her thoughts and it's, there's a total uncertainty and a question of like, wait, what in the hell is actually going on here that doesn't actually resolve itself until literally to me, the last, you know, 10 minutes of the movie, <laughs> maybe five minutes. Right. And it was so uneasy. The shot of the trash with all of the, with all of the um, milkshakes. That's where really he's signaling, Hey, yeah, this is all fucked up, but up to the point, it's just tense. Yeah, up to that point, it's a nightmare. Well, I guess, all right. I guess let's go in roughly chronological order because I do want to talk about that very badly. But I know we don't have to, but I do have thoughts about... I, I think we do have to. And I, I also, I do want to actually say, I want to just bring up one thing before we dive into the chronological because we talk about yeah. the actors. Jesse Buckley, who is phenomenal in this. Yeah. Um, and I loved her in Men. Uh, a thing when I was looking up stuff about this, I didn't know Brie Larson was supposed to be her originally. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's also a good cast. Yeah, I can Inside. see that. Just odd. That's all. That's all. Um, but yeah, the only thing I really want to say about the drive, it is, it's sort of, it is that it, there's little hints of what's to come, but definitely no, I don't think anyone watching the first time through would, it's kind of an unguessable twist by its structure. You wouldn't 100%. go, Oh, and this is all in the mind of a jammer like that. That's a random guess. But, um, there's this uncanny quality. It's unclear whether they can read each other's minds and to what degree. And uh, 
it's also, I think, a really interesting challenge as a filmmaker. And I do feel like Kaufman's evolving as a filmmaker. I'd love to hear Abe speak on this. Maybe I'm wrong because I have less of an eye for that. But I did notice some editing and camera tricks in the drive because oh, like yeah. there's, you know, movies like Locke where it's leave Schreiber just in a car for the whole time. Um, that's tough and you have to get creative. And I actually saw a lot of that on display, given the fact that the first like 20 minutes of the thing is driving in a car. I absolutely agree. I, I think the, the greatest work probably is the dinner scene that we referenced. Mm-hmm. Just like, I mean, it's not just the acting. The acting is phenomenal. Like Tony Collette doing what she's doing and how Jesse Buckley becomes domestic at times and then is not domestic in other times. Um, but it's the, um, it's kind of the ticking clock. It's 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 the sound design. It's the editing. It's the abruptness of the cuts. It's the talking over each other. He really is getting better at just creating a sequence to yeah. make you feel. Something. And even simple stuff like uh, in the car, they they use the exact same size shot of her close over and over for a sequence. And he says, yeah. incidentally, Wordsworth wrote a series of love poems to a girl named Lucy. And when it cuts back to her, it's slightly pulled out, just slightly. And she goes, like me. Yeah. To, and it deflates the moment. So you're like, this is hollow. So this is nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is dead. Yeah. I think the car <laughs> scenes really are exaggerating dread. Mm. And I think that oh, like, no, the we're dinner get and house there. scenes are, in, are really uh, pulling from anxiety. Uh, which are like kind of the two tent poles of the movie to me. So I think he did a great job. Well, and, and the dad, um, and again, I would, I, I would agree with you. I think when, when Swain's like, I, it feels like Kaufman's like maturing as a director. And I don't, again, I don't know as much as others, but the, the way all of it's filmed, the way it's done, the way the actors are framed and the dad staring at her in deeply uncomfortably. I mean, to me, the whole time where he's slightly too close slightly staring too long at everything she says with that awful smile he's so good the dude had, he was also in a fargo tv series where he also did the smile i think exceptionally well mm-hmm. um he's he, i think he's great but this this deeply uneasy way of interacting where uh i don't like the abstract stuff and just the way he talks is so fucked up <laughs> yeah. and and it's and you wonder what's going on. And they, they hint at the basement, like all of the horror tropes throughout this become this thing before dinner, they see the door and she's like it from the dog, apparently trying to get in. And it clearly is fucking not. And he's yeah. freaked out. Don't go in the basement. And then that like everything is pointing to horror tropes, but all of them yeah. are subverted and all of them are also yeah. deeply uncomfortable in a way that is like normal social situations. Like the first time meeting your in-laws, the first time meeting the girl you're dating's parents, the first time- You want to break up with a guy, but you're trapped on a long road trip. Yeah. Yeah. uh, All of these things are like hyper normal things we probably feel with in some way or another, but he takes them, adds the horror trope, the horror trope's not real, subverts them, and also on top of it, it's this insane fucking mind game. It's It's wild. Which does make for, it's still not as dense- like, I don't want people who are scared it, it, it off is that, by... It is dense. It well, is dense. okay, it is, but, but I'm going to say not as dense as Synecdoche, second to second. Um, and I only oh. say that because I think there's people who would who are thrown off by Synecdoche or find it too dense and dry because of the information load, who might like this. It feels a little more spacious to me. Would you not agree? Um, so I would say that feels it's not as necessarily dense. Uh, mm-hmm. So Synecdoche, in order to get it 
and I, I, I do mean this in like that really snobby asshole-ish way, in order to really follow the story, you do need to see all of the different things. And, and we talked about hard. it on the podcast. Yeah. And you need to be thinking about it. You need to recognize and notice and watch and take notes. You don't have to, to kind of get this movie. I actually think, um, you know, I recommended it to, I'm never recommending this movie to anyone else ever again. I recommended it to two people who then told me it's the fucking saddest thing I've ever seen. Thanks, Brooks. <laughs> like mad yeah. at me. Yeah. Um, but they and got the point. Were Abe and Michael. I would say they got it. <laughs> like they got the point. Right. The right. I understood. Like, yeah. And well, I got to say, I think it's actually for such a bleak film. Uh, it's worth two watches. Exactly two watches. Because now I don't need to watch it again. But knowing the twist, there also is a density of unique foreshadowing that does not scan at all meaning as i said you would not guess the twist but then as you watch it almost every line is in reference to the fact that this is a janitor's suicide note like when uh she gives a poem about how coming home is awful and and they get into an argument about how living is the universal impetus and he goes pointedly like but not everything wants to live not everything wants to live right and they just drop it there. And you're like, of course, this is a suicide note. And when they see the sheep and, and she says how depressing it must be to just be in one place shitting and staring at the wall your whole life. That's what a fucking janitor's life is like. That's, you know, it, it's it all maps very satisfyingly, which is sort of Kaufman's signature thing. When you watch it again, I find. Oh, and it's and it and if you want to be that person, I know Swain, you and I are those people. Who, who notice details, everything that's mentioned, uh, every quote, every piece of anything is actually in Jake's child, childhood bedroom. And you have this very strange interaction between when she goes in, and in, you can see a few of them, but there's like a million things that it's the, the Woodsworth book on the shelf happens to be that. The mm -hmm. introductory to virology that she mentioned on his shelf. David Foster Wallace's book that he mentions on his shelf. Uh, all the way through to like, uh, uh, I mean, just, it's weird when you start talking about the things that he sees on the, on the bedroom, everything is there. He's referencing stuff he's read and it's clear. She's also him like that. She's yeah. like, it, I'm not saying again, the first time did not recognize this. This is like, this movie is a very amazing left turn and we've ruined it for you already. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but goddamn. It's it's so well done, and it's and it's little things uh, at dinner. They mention a, a, a painting, Christina's World. Um, God, she, so good. And and she's like, oh, they're excited because she's trying to talk about, uh, you know, the the power of abstract that has real people in it. But Christina's World is like a painting about how we remember scenes versus how they are actually constructed. That's actually the paintings about how memory is faulty and we warp things towards our memory. And like those things are like gigantic red lights that you don't notice the first time through, but then you're like, oh mm -hmm. shit, what about that? Oh God, what about that? And it's, it's crazy how far it goes. Uh, incidentally, through listed that at his critique of Christina's world or not Christina's world, but the painting she does that's reminiscent is how can a picture of a field look sad without a person in the field looking sad? <laughs> and she says, maybe you're the person looking out at the field. But then I could see myself, like if I looked down, I'm not a ghost. 
Just a good line. He was so good. <laughs> yeah. I, he was so Does good not in that role. Understand art. He can't access art in any way. Like in, not in a mean way. He doesn't understand what you're trying to like get at, <laughs> which I love. It's no, very well, dad. Well, and all of the stuff that he references, because again, what the dad's saying is actually him, the janitor. Like as, as much it's, right. it's his version of the dad as being this anti-art, don't go deeper, things are on the surface. Like, like dad never could understand my art. Exactly. Dad never understood yeah. my art, did, never believed in it, uh, <laughs> that, that carries through to him uh, all um, the way through to, again, he's referencing all of these things. He's, he's memorized uh, reviews, right, from, um, uh, what's her name, Pauline um, uh, Kale. Yeah, review. Kale. He memorized her fucking reviews. Like, he's he's... It, which is still very surface. It's a level famous teardown of something, and he's he does it word for word, the whole paragraph. Yeah, he remembers the critique and the anger towards a piece of art perfectly. His dad hates art, and we come to learn that he also sort of wished he had become an artist. Like there's the deep sadness in this film is I find extraordinary, but that he internalized that and he attaches it to his dad. I think is, um, I the way his memory works is the way a lot of our memories work. And I think, again, this is Kaufman doing his Kaufman thing where he's, you know, trying to share, here's how, you know, memory fucks with people. And he's done this before. He loves doing this shit. But here I think is a very poignant version of that. Including, well, yeah, yeah. I think what we're dancing, <laughs> but if you don't know this by this point, you're not going to learn it. Kaufman is slightly pretentious, as am I. That's goes with the package as why hello, that's why hello, I like brother it. And pretentiousness. And it even like this movie even includes a snide like modern modern artist garbage, like it's just pablum. But I it works. I thought it was very funny when. So it's a janitor. Imagining a relationship and then imagining them, what would they watch on TV or in the movie theater or whatever? He comes up with this stupid rom com that Nimrod. Nimrod that ends with, What did you say? Did you say you love me? I think I did. Idiot. And then it oh. says, Directed by Robert Zemeckis. That's such a good burn. <laughs> I love that so much. There's no way that's Which in the book. Zemeckis agrees. There's no way to, that's in the, the book. Way. That's so Charlie the story behind that. The story behind that is that, uh, an editor was putting together a rough cut and put it in there uh, as a, as like just having a thing. It wasn't yeah. actually in the original script. Kaufman laughed so hard when he saw it, he asked them to keep it and they went to Zemeckis and got permission. That's awesome. <laughs> wow. Good for Zemeckis, but that's really cool. Um, okay. I want to ask, uh, I want, since it seems like you've put more brain work into some of the mapping, there's a couple biggies that stand out for me. Let's start with the Oklahoma connection. Um, you, we set up prior to taping, you were in Oklahoma, you know, it, at least well from that vantage, um, there, Oklahoma's woven throughout to the point that I'm like, obviously something with Oklahoma, I'm not blind, but I have not done the work to get to know Oklahoma, uh, know the plot of Oklahoma or start connecting those dots. Why is Oklahoma woven all throughout the movie? Does it, what does it add? All right. So. There, there are layers to this. Let's let's talk about like the first obvious layer that I'm confident I can say that Kaufman was at least going with, and that because this was Oklahoma wasn't in the. I can't even remember if Oklahoma was actually in the book, like almost at all. I think uh, it was a scene they were practicing the high schoolers, but it wasn't like it's a major theme. It's a major motif. This one, yeah, uh, from from dancing to uh, him singing in a lonely room, uh, which is Judd's song from mm -hmm. from the musical. 
Uh, none of that was in the book. Um, Judd's character in Oklahoma, if you haven't seen it, Oklahoma is basically the story of people who fuck. Uh, that's basically Oklahoma. It's like and they farmers all fuck in Oklahoma, they all fuck each other they in various combinations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's, it's, like, it's hard to describe it. Uh, if, you, if you ever get a chance to watch it, the euphemisms are amazing. Uh, oh, I would love to reach into your, like, it's, I can't even describe that they shouldn't be doing this musical in high school. And I'm not a pan is just... in the bread pan. Pick it out. Dough. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But there's one character who doesn't fuck. He's actually the only one Judd and Judd early on his introduction to us. He's the loser stayed uh, stable boy who takes care of the horses. Who's creepy to Lori, Lori and Curly are like the main characters. It's clear that they're going to end up together. He's handsome and clever and Judd's dumb and big and oafish. So Curly goes to talk to him to try to get him to not bother Lori anymore. He goes in, and Judd's like, Judd's looking at porn. And he buys porn from Ali Hakim, who's the salesman. Um, yes, this is, this is actually in Oklahoma, every one of them. This is not like I'm making, mm, like, this right. is not a recent retelling. He buys porn, he loves jerking off to porn, and it's kind of fucked up his brain because he's like, Curly comes in, he's like, look at this girl. He's like, oh, wow, yeah, she's pretty. Um, this is our introduction to Judd. And then the first thing Curly does is he tells Judd to hang himself, to kill himself. Oh. Um, which is he's kind a creep? Of, no, I mean, nothing's been justified yet. No, oh, he just okay. like goes, boy, uh, this rope here, mighty sturdy. Bet you you could uh, hang yourself from it. Big guy even like you. It's like, that's yeah. literally how we enter. Like, this is the introduction. Guy who jerks off who should kill himself. Mm. And uh, my ears are burning. Yeah. So uh, Judd's character is one that is deeply sidelined. And if there is a story of an incel that like has been around for a very long time, it's Judd. His first song is in a lonely room where he's alone with his porn and it depresses him. And someday he's, he's going to get a wife. He's going to get a woman. Yeah. I'm going to have my own woman. That's his song. It's all he wants. And there's this odd side to it where it is empathetic, even in Oklahoma, because like we all want somebody. Of course, he's a rapist. So there's that. Uh, mm -hmm. That becomes mm -hmm. a thing later. Mm -hmm. He becomes super rapey um, and then ends up uh, stabbing himself when he and Curly fight and he dies. And the town holds a, uh, a, like a mock court on the spot and finds Curly not guilty. Uh, oh, good. Good for him. Yeah. And that's how it ends. And then, it, then they sing the refrain and Oklahoma ends as a musical and, and Curly and Lori go off and get married. Curly's oh, wow. character is yeah. an incel. Like classic style, uh, the most like current day everything. And yeah. that character... Why was he there? Why was he positioned there? What is it like to be him? What is he actually wishing for? And that, I think, is what Kaufman brought in from Oklahoma, is the what was he wishing for? What was Curly, when he sang that song, what is, mm -hmm. what is it that he was actually hoping for? And I, I liked that inclusion. You could go much deeper because the story of Oklahoma's like the way it was built. There's and all detailed this, beats in it. There's all kinds of weird level. shit. Yeah. that I think works, but um, there's that. And then there's the lesson of Oklahoma, which is throughout also the movie. And this, is, if there's a lesson to Oklahoma, aside from uh, don't be 
big and dumb because then you should kill yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Aunt Eller does this scene at the end where she says, basically, uh, life is terrible, but you don't deserve the good things unless you can handle the bad. So uh, you've got to be able to stand up to pain. <laughs> that's the that's the lesson Oklahoma. Frontier life's tough. We're, you, you don't deserve the good if you can't handle the bad. Uh, and that's okay. The now, of the if I may, musical. sorry to interrupt, Please. but I just because I wrote the quote down, I got to compare word for word with what the pig says at the end of this movie, which is it's hard to be a pig, even worse, a pig infested with maggots. But somebody has to be right. It may as well be you. Luck of the mm -hmm. draw. You have to accept it and move on. There is kindness in the world, though. It might not. It just might not be for you. Everything's the same when you look close enough. As a physicist, you know this. You, me, ideas, we're all one thing. It's not as bad once you get over it and realize you're just a pig. So the dad has that lesson throughout. He talks about that. Uh, they talk about how he won a diligence award, the main character, that he persevered. He got through it. It was tough for him, but he made it anyway. This is the phrasing they use to describe him, and he uses to describe himself sort of throughout it, that he did do that. He is tough that he is hardy, that he deserves a sweet and tender because he was tough. Because he was hard. That's a different statement than you can't enjoy things unless you have bad things. Well, uh, in fact, in this movie, uh, which I think is such a good depiction of depression, he becomes fixated pretty early on on getting a tasty freeze from the Dairy Queen analog. And other stuff happens there that I want to get into. But also, as soon as they have it, he's like... Why it's like cold outside? Why don't it's too sweet? We gotta throw these away. And it's like the it's such a great manifestation of anhedonia. Like he can't even enjoy the thing he was looking forward to all day for some reason. It's right. just you can't get yeah. anything back from the universe. But Abe, I'm I'm I actually completely agree with you, and I think that's the the fun part about um, what we're talking about is I think what we're what Curly saw and what Curly and Judd both saw, and they both believe in this core message of. You got to be hardy. You got to take the good with the bad. You got to roll with the punches, all of that. What that means right. on one side is people who have more good than bad, it's pretty easy to roll with the punches when you have more good than bad. That's curly. He gets a pretty girl. He's the handsome guy. Everyone loves him. But mm. when you have more bad than good, you tend to, and this is the incel mentality, you tend to go, right. well, because I've taken the bad, I deserve the good. And deserve Curly's, something for this. Yeah. yeah right. And Judd's character is about being owed a woman, like Jordan Peterson style. Right. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. that's Ex instead of accepting the reality, which is that life isn't fair. Yeah. Or you know? maybe change who you are. A and bit. Right. incidentally, there's a great Al Swearingen monologue that I know Abe loves that uh oh, is yeah. also along those lines, life always has more punishment, so just stand back up. Uh, in, and also I think notably, or probably a good time to mention one of the only changes. Okay. There's a couple, but one of the only changes of if from the book, I noticed, uh, reading the Wikipedia of the book outline was that the janitor kills himself in the book by slitting his throat with a sharpened coat hanger, like yeah. stabbing himself in the throat of the coat <laughs> hanger rough in this. He, uh, just freezes to death, but then also, uh, one of the key things. And I think it's interesting to bring up because the play, the Oklahoma motif is also an excuse to have them dress in old person makeup, really clumsy, like obvious old person makeup, which I'm becomes so confused theatrical. by that. I actually yeah. want to talk which, about, this. which becomes a whole nother conversation about, um, what does it mean that obviously he fears death and the inevitability of death and aging is something 
we all fear to some degree and Kaufman's interested in and the book's interested in. So like what I mean is the fact that the parents age and wither away before our eyes in really good, realistic old person makeup. And then the fact that they appear later in the play in shitty old person makeup clearly means something. (laughs) Well, it it, it has to, it was, they were wearing stage old person makeup. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My interpretation was, sorry, I'm hoping that we have the same one, but like my interpretation was in a way, uh, the, you know, uh, Jake character essentially is putting on a play for himself to make himself feel better before he dies, which, you know, there's a share of dementia, which we can talk about, which may be contributing to the fact that he's not really remembering things exactly. But when we look to the dream, kind of ballet that happens yeah. uh it's all it's all theatrics oh, and it makes him a tragic uh, hero a he kills himself to so, save her and shit yeah yeah so as he's remembering oklahoma he's remembering that version of something like a happy ending that he would perhaps feel that he's justified to uh where they all clap for him in a like a beautiful mind kind of way um he's essentially he kind of knows it's a fiction and that fiction is now presenting itself in the reality in the audience itself is wearing old person makeup as opposed to earlier in the film when it was better more realistic makeup where he's actually trying to like delude himself into these are the real memories i I had a different take on the makeup thing yeah i I like yours and now i'm not sure if i want to say mine but i feel obligated um so for me it was i presumed that he was looking back um there's a scene earlier in the film where he is uh, cleaning in the uh, uh, the playhouse for the school, whatever it's called, where they're where they're doing the stage play of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and uh, the the cool pretty girls in high school are the leads, and he's staring and watching them, and they like ooh pervert, like they give him this look, like and he's like unnerved mm-hmm. by it, <clears throat> and that that scene at the end where he's in stage makeup and he's right. doing the scene from a beautiful mind, um, that entire bit that's happening is actually him i don't know how to say um it's proving that he wasn't being a pervert instead what he wanted to be is loved on stage and so he's actually putting himself where that girl was on stage in the front in a podium uh, all of those things in that shit makeup with everyone else to have that moment yeah, I think there's that's right. And I love how much that mirrors that clutching at some kind of rope when you're in that dark place. It's as if to say it's as if so there's this great on so many levels we're ramping towards you can feel the janitor mind, the overmind feeling the feeling of or maybe I, there is no maybe I'm just a piece of shit. Yeah, this is why I'm going to kill myself. And it, it works on so many levels, including that grasping it like. Towards the third act, you get the feeling when you watch it a second time that the janitor is thinking things like, man, if I had just gotten a good woman's love, I'd be happy. No, no, maybe. Or if, man, if I had just gotten like recognized for my mental achievements, I probably could have made it work. Like he's looking down all these corridors of ways that it could have been good and it just didn't. Um, But he'll never know that the reality, which is that you get any of those things and life continues to be hard. Right. So. Right. Uh, there's something mm-hmm. I want to talk about about this about how he frames it which I think this is all like I think we all kind of agree about how it how Kaufman actually kind of nailed it in this respect uh, what I want to kind of do is I want to see your guys' feelings on just a statement I want to make 
about how I disagree with what he's doing, which is that there's this feeling throughout the act three. I mean, really, once you start to unravel and realize it's a mental exercise kind of thing, uh, this feeling of regret for feeling that you're the hero of your own story. I think that there is a feeling and a vibe in just what we were just talking about, where it's like he is kind of self-conscious about it. He's a piece of shit, and he knows he's a piece of shit, and he feels like he... But he's also selfish so he's not gonna give up the idea of like well i'm gonna and he still get he's mine completely and all that insulted and undervalued he thinks he's secretly right. really special and important but yeah i'm sorry like for me when i was watching it 100 percent, all humans believe they are the hero of their story and i don't feel that they should have like they should have regret about that I mean, I, I'm not saying that this, that's not a statement that's sympathetic for people who feel that they're better than others, but Kaufman is right that we're all more complex than our avatars in others' heads. But there's a statement that's said early in the movie, which is that they're separating the concept of color as being merely perception or what is he says is quotes deeds of light. And here's the thing. I fervently believe that yes, the brain and its limitations pepper how we see color that what we describe as color is definitely touched by and goes through the filter of our brain, but they're not figments of our imagination. They are real. They're actual deeds of light. To me, you are the hero of your own story because you have nothing else to do. Like, so I don't know why we should feel regret for that. Maybe you should have regret well, for your yeah. deeds. I, I Colors think, are but, real in that different wavelengths of light exist and that interaction exists and our eye exists and our eye decodes it. But it's like to say, to reduce it to that thing is red is really just a, you know, to make language simpler and to make communication easier. No one, like, yeah. I don't think anyone ever wanted to have to communicate every time. Oh, hand me the shirt. Which one? The one with the wavelength between 70 hertz and blah, 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 right? It's a level of it's a level of just fudging it in order to exist in the world of com right. interdependent communication, which we do. And the only other thing that came to mind from that for me is I do sometimes wonder, you said 100% of the people on the planet. I do wonder if that's true or if there's such a thing as a truly collectivist society or humans who are acculturated. I truly don't know what it is to be raised in a distinctly different culture that puts family first or puts the country first. Um, I was raised as a cowboy American. It's important that I have big dreams and try to achieve them. Thomas Edison boy, you know what I mean? So I think acculturation does affect even your mental constructs, language, affects the way you think about your own importance. But then also I agree with you that there is some solidity to the idea that even if you believe, as I kind of suspect, the consciousness is some kind of very fancy trick or side effect that arises naturally from complexifying systems of data input and our processing thing, you know, right? So if that's all it is, um, like it's just sensory input and then what we make of it, uh, it feels it feels like the thing that is me as in the core of where all my sensory input is housed is physically in this body. And so in some sense, I am this body and I can't make myself be Abe because I don't have access to his right. eyes and ears and thought stream. Um, but 
Yeah, so it's basically boils down to the question of Cartesian duality, right? Do you believe that there's an irreducible element to you that is your identity that could be transferred? No, I don't really. So I guess I got to be the hero of my own meat body. But if all my sensory input, let's say, for argument's sake, was coming into a different location, I wonder if I would... Th- and then my body was like a... a a Muppet that I used remotely to gather resources, but let's say my brain is housed in a warehouse where I get all my sensory input. I wonder, would I think of the meat body as myself or would I think of myself as in the, that warehouse? Like I, those are the interesting things I think about from what you said. Moreover, <laughs> does a landscape inherently mean anything? Can, oh, that is the dad's question valid. Can a landscape be sad? Not really. You can be sad. <laughs> right. Uh, I would just say, just as a thing, um, I do readings of Gills Blues every week. If you'd like to join, it is it kind of solves a lot of those problems you're talking about. And I'll just leave that there. Yeah, yeah. Happy to talk about it. I've been diving in, but I do not have time to read actual philosophical texts. But because of your interest has now rubbed off on me, I'm just diving into like articles and synopses of what they... For sure. They, well, uh, then, they're they pretty on the ball, film, the losing country. Of, they're interesting. They're not bad. It's on my radar. And you're not the first either. So it's like, if you are, if you are interested in reading philosophy, I think uh, just knowing Brooks, I think that that... I trust Dear readers... Wreck. Trust that wreck and, uh, you know, dip in. What what would you say is a good starter text? Um, I mean, for me, uh, we I have a recording of Anti-Oedipus on Spotify. You can literally read along with the entire thing. That's the big hit. It's the big one. Well, it takes a while, but it's basically everything. So it kind of solves a lot of these problems. And specifically with that, to bring it back to the point, because I, I, I agree with both of you, I with, with a twist. The thing I like about a lot of what we see inside of this is that it puts us in the position early on as kind of a side character. Um, I actually, I tend to think of her not as uh, our avatar, even though that's what she is literally in the sort of filmmaking code, but that she is his idealized uh, uh, date mm-hmm. uh, woman because she's whatever he wants and laughs whenever he wants and changes her mind in order to like his team name or this or that or you know, whatever it is, she's, she's produced the memory of her, the false memory that's kind of being reinserted in his very real memories of taking care of his parents as they died, uh, what they were like, getting his medals, everything. We're able to see kind of this very interesting production of a human and how he got to be where he was. And the way colors work to go to that, it, the nature of representation in general, words, all of these things, they are the, the, very special sort of secondary thing that give that have very floaty fun ideas but they're not connected to real lived experience this whole film uh until the very end uh is actually not connected to very sort of lived real experience we see a few moments of his as we go through his sort of memories of everything and i it's hard for me not to bring in like and discuss like bergson and how bergson talks about how we sort of utilize memories and how time works in memories. And I thought it was beautifully done in this film, how we skipped back and forth and even interrelated moments where the mom is dying on her deathbed and it's clear she's not mentally well. And then suddenly the dad's there and he's just the age we met him at and how Mm -hmm. these sort of worlds are colliding because we're inside of the memories, Mm -hmm. time losing its place, all of these things mattering less, but we can see very clearly the stuff, the little uh, hangers that he was able to put his hat on over and over to be told what he is. 
and the mom telling him what he is and what the dad saying what right. things are and this sort of movement um that i'm seeing i think he does a very good job at this sort of movement of uh the fields oh field doesn't have out on its own uh you know if a tree falls in the woods doesn't make a sound kind of thing but it, it, it can it be sad on its own no it requires an artist to sort only of it, but... or only sentient perception can endow it with feeling meaning yeah exactly and so it's this really interesting sort of semi-nihilist uh sort of view of things but his reality and how he saw things is clearly produced from the life he led and we actually get to travel along with him he was and then the book, they go a little bit more into this. He was actually quite brilliant and sort of lost himself over time um, uh, to mental illness and a few other things and having to, you know, just other other stuff, the way life sort of gets in the way. Mm. And he's a bit of a goodwill hunting character, uh, despite, you know, being actually kind of off. Um, the, book, well, the book's different yeah. enough. Well, that's um, the other thing, big thing that he added that's so, it's almost adaptation-esque, as Kaufman added. That it's not only that he's imagining himself on stage, but there's portions where he literally does these big sappy speech from the end of A Beautiful Mind. Like, it's literally the scene from A Beautiful Mind, yeah. which is quite <clears throat> funny to me. Followed by him singing A Lonely the Room from Oklahoma in that same moment, which is they could not be more diametrically opposed. Right. In terms but much of like adaptation, about. it's like in the third act, a different writer took over. But I interpret that as the janitor like sort of phoning it in for the last few pages because he's going to kill himself anyway, you know? Or like he feels, he doesn't feel the need to be as connected or grounded. He's started writing a different kind of story. Well, I think for me it was, he he kind of imagined this entire life he had with her um, all the way through to this sort of end moment. And there she is in the audience applauding him, but she's not real. The Lonely Room is actually his story. Lonely Room is, as a song is about I don't have anyone. I'm going to get myself a wife. The fun part about that, just a fun side note, uh, the original film version of Oklahoma, they removed it because it made uh, it made uh, Judd too empathetic. It was too sad. Oh, uh, Oliver Twist, same deal. The villain had a song and they took it out because they're like, he's really scary. It softens him too much to sing. They'll often take like the Creeps song yeah. out. Especially it feels weird for a loser to sing. Well, that's the whole thing is. That's how they get invisibilized and marginalized, right? We're acculturated to be like, I don't even want to look at that creep. Get that creep out of here. Which I think is part of what it's meditating so that, on. That, that we want to be a goes, little sad for orphans. We don't want to be too sad. We don't want to have orphans in my fucking face all the time. <laughs> it's depressing. Yeah, Jesus, with these fucking but orphans. But you have this scene, A Beautiful Mind, where he's very much, uh, I love you, you are the reason, blah, 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 all of that, to uh, if... I need a wife, I'm alone. And it's the juxtaposition of the two is almost, uh, we're seeing inside of him, he he held these two thoughts. This is what he, he thought he could become if he had this. Like one leads into the other. These are not, despite being deeply opposed, they're not diametrically in, you know, incongruent. They're, if I had a wife, I could be the dude from a beautiful mind uh, who also uh, had mental illness and went insane later in life, which is the story of the, uh, the janitor in the book uh, that he he mm -hmm. you know had serious mental problems. Um, I could have been a beautiful mind if I had had a woman. <clears throat> this is what I yeah. would have had, but I didn't. So this and so it kind of his cycle is those two things over and oh, over. Oh, and, and over. towards the end, he even has a sequence where he uh, dares to imagine her 
running into his real self, his janitor self, and she's forgotten about Jake. Like she talks about feeling his memory slip away and instead they have a nice moment and cry and he's like paternally hugs her. So it's his mind even grasping it. She hugs him. She hugs him and cries and he's like, and he goes, I see you, I see you. So it's like, well, maybe I can't get the girl, but maybe I could like mentor the girl or be like a father figure to the girl. I just love how he's like grasping at straws at the end is so... Does right. feel desperate. It comes right after her chastising for thinking about right. her. And then she sympathizes. And then she starts to go, him. I don't even remember what Jake looks like. Uh, and it's, as Brooks noted, but I just want to highlight, all throughout there's self-loathing stuff too. Like if it, this is janitor, if this is the janitor's image of himself, they have a scene where they talk about David Foster Wallace and how up his own ass it is and that if you choose to commit suicide it's like the ultimate pretension because the suicide becomes your life story you become a cautionary tale it's obnoxious uh and that's so spot on that i i don't think i don't think arrogance or or, uh whatever you want to call it megalomania i don't think uh arrogance ever goes without some measure of self-loathing too and it's true there's i mean there's people who are sociopaths and or detached from reality in that way where they have no fear but I think for the bulk of us, if you dare, if you dare to sometimes think that you're very special or have a destiny or like, or are going to shake things up, you obviously, you also attend deep moments of doubt where, or where you think you're a piece of shit or no, it's all going to fall apart or imposter syndrome, or this is fake and a lie. It's, it's that razor's edge. Like, I do think they go hand in hand for the bulk of, of humans. And, uh, I appreciate that. That's like you said, there's so much in this film that's, you're like, well, that's just true. And you don't really usually see that in movies. And one of those is um, the deep insecurity that comes with also self-aggrandizement. I think that's a cool little loop that exists in a lot of brains. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of taps into the regret for feeling you're the hero of your own story kind of deal. Guilt for feeling you're the hero. Yeah, and should you... I guess yeah. I think the healthy answer is no. But uh, Brooks, I'm dumb, so I didn't fully imbibe. Can I just ask? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always looking for an authority figure I can trust to just tell oh, me the answer. I'm happy but to be daddy. <laughs> no, not you. Would Deleuze, does Deleuze think there is a, an irreducible identity or that identity just arises out of systems? Identity is fully procedural. It, it is an emergent property that comes out of hyper-complex processes. Nice. But that's but, what I think too. But it it's isn't that it, it isn't that things don't exist. He doesn't believe in the real possible distinction where it's like, well, this is real and this is not. It, he he mm-hmm. eschews that. Uh instead, uh something far more complicated. But his reasoning, I think, is a little bit more lucid where uh, it's you know, if I have a nightmare or if I have a, a genuine anxiety or if I feel Does like a, a murderer is coming, it exists because it's producing something. It's producing things. Things that produce things have to be, you know, it, calling them not real, it puts us in a weird spot where we're like, okay, well, when do we, when do things become more real? Or like, and it's just a silly sort of distinction for him. It's about sort of what is actual, like actual versus virtual. And he doesn't, yeah. cons- he considers all of it to be real. Uh, it's also incredible that we're trying to do all this with either language Local. or math, which are both intermediaries already. Like mm-hmm. we can't link mind to mind or idea to idea. So that's that. Like we always have to exist in a medium outside ourselves <clears throat> in order to even start <coughs> thinking. It seems. You guys hear about uh, the universe is not locally real? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the physics? I didn't. 
Yeah, Nobel Meaning Peace what? Prize this year. It means that it's impossible for our universe to be both local and real. Uh, define local in the physics context. What does that mean? To a local physicist? means that uh, here all, all interactions take place in uh, like spatial and like temporal, like I guess like in our backyard. Um, so are they saying the universe as we experience this is not possible? It's not a closed system. I still don't know uh, what that means. It's, it's, uh, I'll send you. It's it's actually one of the more complicated things, and it actually okay. Anytime you have a sentence that also can end with "and Einstein was proven wrong," it means that we're right. not going to crack it on this fucking podcast. Well, that's what because I was also the only thing I was going to say is if um, some primates who have only been around for like the blink of an eye and think they're very smart have said we did the math and technically the universe doesn't exist, but the universe right. is sitting there existing. I'd probably trust the universe over even like yeah, yeah, our yeah, scientists yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> would be like, well, you'll probably figure mm. out in a hundred years why you were wrong about that. Right. Um, real, yeah. real doesn't mean the same thing as like, is it, am I real, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. Like that. I think it, real has, real has a physical definition. Actual. Yeah. I, I, it, the, the word o objects have specific properties when they're created and uh and that's how we're used to seeing the world Fine. you know is great. that those i'm interested to read the true. article that sounds great I, i've got a youtube video that explains it great Takes oh youtube video minutes. even better diagrams and shit. i think the idea why i mentioned it is that it's like open systems and closed systems and i think that that's kind of attributed to here to art as well when we talk especially about universality when we go back to that landscape conversation we talk uh she kind of makes this case about trying to find something that's universal yet at the same time we're talking about something that is if you don't have someone sad inside the landscape how do you know the landscape's sad or how do you know it's a sad painting right so the, there's this concept of like do you lose universality when you are being less direct with your commentary? Do you need someone in there to tell people how to think? Do you need a character we can root for and identify as in? Yeah. Be, or because you hate that, which I know a lot of people do because it seems propagandist and all that thing, all that, all that stuff that the argument's very good. You're exerting too much control now. Right. right. <clears throat> and so what's your criteria? Do you want to be universal or do you want to be, uh, you know, more true to that right. uh, interpretation of like us outside of the painting can interpret the events. And I don't know that we always need it, but it is compelling how the bulk of humanity most of the time, even in art things that I would say set out like pop culture stuff that sets out not to necessarily have a character that you actually are viewing the world through their lens. Like I'm thinking of Tony Soprano and Walter White and stuff, or even Rick from Rick and Morty. Nevertheless, the bulk of people who watch it will slowly be like, I actually like Rick. I think Rick has good points because I attached to him and he's the funny one. Therefore, I must justify to myself that I somehow identify with his worldview as well. Walter White's like it's the hero. It's crazy how people will do that. The, we will always make some, the standout character the hero. And even when you're like, no, 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 no. Um, uh, they were the main character, not the hero per se. They were just the main character. I don't know. Well, there, yeah. there's All something right. to be yeah. said. It's one of the things that also happens. Uh, there's a great book called uh, Why We Love Psychopaths uh, that goes about this in sort of, uh, sort of cultural theory. And it's and a lot of it has to do with the fact that all of these characters don't have to deal with the social norms or the things that we're stuck with. Because to try to steer this back to the movie, 
one of the challenges that he runs into as a character, and it's his entire life, is that he is, like all of us, deeply socially produced. The world he's in helped make him. He, the idea of, like, he, he did this to himself, or he's an individual in an island and made all these choices that put him in this position I really don't personally ascribe to. But very much, he doesn't either, and neither I do, I think, does Kaufman, because the complexity around what produces him and what made him, how his parents treated him, how he was raised, or how he views how he was raised, which is really all that matters, um, also how he's treated just generally. We see a handful of snapshots that I don't think are uh, in his head, where he's at school and the the cool popular girls, uh, which is a funny thing to give a shit about when you're, you know, 70 years old, but the cool popular girls are making fun of him and mm -hmm. people in general just treating him like shit. And he's overweight. People think he's creepy. Even the first shot we get of him all the way back at the beginning where he's looking out the window, like staring down at basically Jesse Buckley, where he basically takes her and puts her into the fantasy. She's even made uneasy by him. Uh, all the way through to where even he's made uneasy by himself hilariously when like he's about to go in and like get the kiss or whatever and it, oh, ah, no someone's watching us it's him yeah and he decides mm -hmm. to get out of the truck and go yell at himself he even is upset at his own voyeurism and the feeling of dirtiness he feels about doing what he's doing while he's doing it, it how your mind can yeah. split into components that comment on each other while they're active and all yeah, that I is totally it's get all that. socially produced like he's people built these walls for him and he he built alongside him he like the he's a bricklayer they were bricklayers and he's just building alongside him helping him build and right. uh his his mother the whole time that's why i go back to that the the line i think that's important from oklahoma and again i don't think it's actually the like lesson to take is uh um hey if you can't handle the good with the bad you don't deserve the good uh kind of thing and that can be taken a million ways uh to talk about what you guys were just saying when we talk about how we can take meaning from things, how we can assign our own meaning, and we do all the time, the, mm -hmm. the lines that are put in front of us, the little points of that sentence, I could take and say, hey, you know, bad shit's happening, but I can get through this because there's also good things. And you can keep that in mind and it helps you get through bad things. Sure. But then if something <clears> really <throat> fucking awful happens to you, it's kind of super difficult and it's easier to then turn it and go, well, I guess... I guess I don't deserve. I guess things. I can't hack it. Yeah. 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 And in this film, in I'm thinking of ending things, it's kind of elucidated or pronounced as a line that I wrote down, which is it's despicable how we label people and categorize them and dismiss them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's it's about social definition. Just to yeah, because speaking of social definition and acculturation, third line stood out to me on the same topic. It is tempting to have someone like your mother to blame things on why you are a certain way, why you feel a certain way. But at a certain point, as an adult, you have to eventually take responsibility for how you are. Mothers are also people with their own pain, and it's like that is just like we were talking about. That statement is true, and in a good moment where you're feeling rational, it can make you open yourself up to, oh, everyone, oh, we're all in this together, everyone. But man, if you're in a dark place, that thought of, no, I'm an adult now, it's all my fault, everything I... If, if my life sucks, it must be something I did. That can fuck you up if you're in a dark place. It's like a double-edged sword line. And there's a lot of those in this. Oh, it's, Things it's that are 100%. true, but are like poison. Like you don't want to fuck with them without proper supervision in the right context. It's 100%. It's, 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 he, he throughout this kind of does uh, 
because I think your spot, it's, you can take it one of two ways. One's really bad. One's really sort of also bad, but in the good direction. But there's like a, another way of like thinking through it. And when you talk about how your parents fuck you up, uh, anyone here who's been in therapy for extended periods will know it's not that you sit there and blame everything on your parents because that's not healthy. It doesn't help you grow. You also don't say they had nothing to do with it because one, that's stupid. Uh, but it also puts everything on your shoulders. Instead, the healthy thing is to realize <clears throat> what your parents encouraged, how they programmed you and built you, so you can how, also and learn what where impact those circuits are and redo them. You, yeah, you like that's that's the healthy sort of other way to go. This guy definitely fucking doesn't. No, he digs the into isn't locally real. Um, yeah. So I know we got to wrap up pretty soon, but I wanted to ask about one more. The last thing in the movie that I think doesn't connect to anything for me. And I'm just wondering, is this just a horror trope? So the thing I didn't get anything out of is when they stop at the burr or whatever it's called and they get burrs, the freezy queen or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the, the women are all super flirty with him and then they smell this thing and she goes, it's just varnish. And then as she's leaving, this, the woman has rashes all over her arms and she goes, it's not varnish. The smell isn't varnish. I'm really scared. <laughs> like, please help me. And then they leave. Mm -hmm. uh, very <gasps> creepy. Did that, what was the so meaning if you read the of book, that? If it, what did I get out of that? I, yeah. Actually, if you read the book, it's weird. I genuinely found it weird in it, uh, in the film. Um, so at the end, he's varnishing the floors, and that's what makes him nuts. That makes him stab oh, himself with the. So he's just noting the smell in his real. But he's world. not varnishing okay. the floors in the in the movie, so I don't I don't know. So it's a weird ad. It does feel yeah, like the basement door that. thing where he just wanted some horror beats in there, so he put them in there. Okay. That one I didn't get. I I, I didn't yeah. understand it in the Maybe context of the more, film. Maybe there's more, but yeah. I, did you all did you all think that uh, the the woman with the rash though? That's uh, remembering a fr like friend from childhood. Yeah. I assumed it was him remembering himself because he's got the oh, rash. Oh, interesting. That okay. I thought it was like because when he reaches over and actual friend that like probably got the rash from the pigs. So that he was. Talking I saw about. it as. He saw that girl um, when he makes that line. I see, I see them every day. He talks about the kids who live with the pain of being bullied the rest of their life, like a gaping wound. Right. Um, but right. as he's saying that, we're seeing the real world. I mean, as far as we know in the film, and we see that girl. And later in his fantasy, we see her again projected into working in this Tulsi town, uh, Frosty Freeze, whatever Frosty Freeze, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the the weird part for that for me is I think he's putting himself like he worked there or whatever it is. He's putting himself sort of again back in time and using her as a cipher for himself. There's that scene where he he gives her the money and he reaches and we don't see like we see Jesse's arms otherwise. And he doesn't have I mean, I didn't see I, I looked a little bit, but he doesn't have the rest in that scene. He does. So it's a, it feels like it's a cipher or some kind of symbolism of, of him mm -hmm. in that spot. There were a few things that didn't connect. And that, His brain's bleeding into each memory's bleeding. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, the idea of the, the basement also didn't fully, there were a few beats in this that I, I didn't get. Uh, and I don't want to be like negative on a Kaufman film, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but there were a few <laughs> things like, and I watched these things like a hawk and I love, I don't, there was a few things, the, the varnish thing. If you didn't know about the book, literally, I have no idea. The rash thing, literally no idea. Don't understand it. The the paintings, I get the thing he's going at, but it's a weird, it didn't feel like a satisfying payoff for me. There was a bunch of shit like that. 
that was like, uh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does, can you explain the paintings? Few. Anyone? And I wonder if as he's aged, he's more free with like, well, I just want that there for vibe or mood or texture, or whatever. I don't know. I, I would love to hear. I mean, I'd love the thing he probably won't give me, which is for him to sit down and do a director's commentary where he goes, this means this. This means this. That'd be lovely. Right. But I mean, lovely now that I've fully ingested it. I highly recommend you ingest all of Kaufman's work for yourself if you like that kind of thing and figure it out before you listen to wags like us do it for you. Um, but if you're here, it's too late. And that's the real horror. Uh, <laughs> what, do, what do they say? Uh, youth? No. Old people are the ash heap of youth. Ooh, happy new Ooh, year! Uh, I, De- I, 2023! Can I give one last critique of the movie? Please. Uh, doesn't he make a line, because we did adaptation earlier, doesn't he shit on the idea of it all being a dream as being the shittiest thing a writer can do? Yep. Oh, yeah, and in true Kaufman fashion, or like that's the point it, of adaptation is to do system. the thing you yeah. said is sucks shit, right? I think that's what he's doing with the landscape here, is he's saying at the end, she hugs him. He gets his sympathy. He dies a com- complicated but a death that is on his own terms, just like the rest but of us. But it was all a dream. It was all a dream. That's true. I mean, in terms of just like if you yeah. say that statement and you look at the fact that the that's the plot, uh, I think that that's him laughing at us. He does that pretty consistently yeah, now. True. Or in himself. If, and he loves the self-deprecation of, I'm just a yeah. schlock jack. I know I think I seem yeah. smart, but I just write Anyways, bullshit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, it's a valid criticism. I mean, I think a lot of people from the from Jumpers, like, yeah, you say that. And just because you point at it then and you're you super yeah. self-aware all the time, you still do it, I though. I think we're savvy. Aren't you, though? Yeah, the modern viewer is kind of weary of uh, lampshading for the sake of lampshading because you're like, well, you, you can't just say it and then you, it's okay to do it. Yeah. I For me, he uh, he gets a little bit of a pass as long as what he's saying is true. And I think in this you know, in this case, in an adaptation, what he's saying is true. I agree. Um, so he gets a, he gets a little uh, grace from me. Well, and, and with all of that, I still think this movie's phenomenal. It's it's one of his best, in my opinion. I still think Synecdoche is easily his best, but I I still think it's a wonderful film. And uh, if you can handle intensely depressing shit, it's fucking yeah. good. Good movie. It gets Abe's grease. Pope Benedict is dead. It's a new year. Let's tackle it bleakly together. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, hey, yeah. Mike. I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> Great. Like this podcast. Um, but before hey. we do, Brooks, can you give them the detailed information just on where they'd find well, your I'm, pod I'm or joke. anything else you want to point them at? My, my wife and I have a, a shared calendar. And when I posted this and I scheduled this, I just wrote, I'm thinking of ending things. And she comes in. She's like, are you okay? Are you okay? Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's easy to find me. Uh, I don't do very much. Uh, I'm, I do Deleuze. I do philosophy. And if you want to uh, learn a little bit more about Deleuze and Guattari or anything goes around that, you can head to discord.gg forward slash DGQC or search DGQC pretty much on any podcast platform and you'll get to hear my dulcet tones reading some of the more complicated critical theory that's ever been written. And they are dulcet, those mm-hmm. tones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Beautiful voice, beautiful guests. Oh, Glad to have you here. You always, you lift the camp up. Um, I think that's all we got. We don't really that's have anything other than join our Patreon. Patreon. We got exclusive stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, we got several. Um, if you're listening, you, this will hit the public feed. But if you still aren't a part of our Patreon, you're missing out on several podcasts that if you throw us a few dollars, they can be yours. They oh, can yes. be yours. They, they include Star Trek The Next yours. Futurama. They include Spiel Boys. Uh, Escape from the Multicurse. Escape from the Multicurse. These are whole good pods about things you like that you'll never Very hear unless good. you give us three dollars a month if i don't say so, so think about it so all right which is a minor amount and i have to vouch for it it's, it's wonderful true. background stuff to have i love it it's less than Thank a cup you, of sir. coffee a month that's right thanks y'all all back right. to work happy new year This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!